I'm Aaron Burns, I'm the sustainability coordinator for the city, and I've been kind of pegged to introduce Dr. Scheel, who we're very happy to have here today, um, introducing this subject. Dr. Scheel is the senior pastor at First Baptist Church in Knoxville. He's been at the church since 2004, and since coming to the church, he's really made his effort on bringing the church into the community, and he's launched a lot of initiatives involving you know, ministries to the homeless, reaching out to immigrants, and also, you know, one of the big things that I thought was interesting was creating shelters for the hurricane refugees that have found themselves in East Tennessee since being displaced out of some of our southeast cities. Um, it is this kind of involvement in the community and his perspective on how these things come together um, that makes him very well positioned to lead this discussion on consumerism and common values. So, on behalf of Knox County Libraries and the city of Knoxville, I'd like to welcome him to lead this discussion and thank him for his participation in this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me for lunch today. And um, I appreciate Emily Ellis and her team and a wonderful host that you are, and uh, what a great venue to be together. Um, I don't know if you have seen the book or have had a chance to peruse it. It has been widely reviewed in the New York Times uh, review of books. I think our own local paper had a, a brief review of this, a brief book note several months ago, and then um, I've seen it passed around and in stores, and it's simply entitled Cheap, the High Cost of Discount Culture, written by Ellen Ruppel Shell. This is her first foray into this kind of retail expose. She's written a book on uh, obesity culture and those kinds of things and other sorts of books. She's a writer for Atlantic Monthly and several things. And so, uh, But this is really her first attempt at trying to uh, get her mind and our minds around what is what we commonly call consumerism today and how appropriate that uh, here right after Black Friday... Um, we would be chastised for our bargain hunting, uh, but that is certainly the topic. And I would like to, even if you, most of you, if you have not read the book, I'll, I'll read just a couple of passages by way of introduction. Then uh, I intend this to be more of a discussion rather than a monologue. And perhaps you have some insight from your own world that you'd like to share. And uh, then I have some personal anecdotes that I'll share with you along the way. But let's sort of frame up uh, what we're talking about. And Shell says this toward the end, but I think this is the heart of the matter uh, for her. She says, cheap, this is page 217 if you're following along in the podcast, uh, cheap is a two-sided coin. Tails is whole foods. We don't have a whole foods in Knoxville, but whole foods is a, is a mega organic food chain in our country. Uh, Tails is whole foods and other chains promoting the oxymoronic ideal of affordable luxury, and heads is Walmart, Target, outlet malls. Oh, we know about outlet malls, don't we? Dollar stores and other low-price brokers. These supposedly opposing entities actually bolster each other, creating the false impression that quality and everything that goes with it must by definition be expensive. This, of course, rationalizes both business models. If we want quality, we go tails. We purchase up. If we want value, we go the other way. What is missing is what we used to take for granted, what my mother called, quote, the happy medium. Now, 
in order to set and frame this book so we can understand what she is talking about, and then we might have some time to critique it as well, but I think in order to understand the book, you need to be fair enough to the author to outline, if you will, what her argument is. So let me talk to you about that. First of all, uh, she makes really four salient points about this notion of the culture of cheap, or what we are commonly referred to in our culture today, our society, is the discount, the bargain hunting, the sales, and what is today retailing at its best. The two-sided coins. We prefer to buy things at a discount price. I was taught this from a very early age. You walk into a store and you look for what's on sale. You do not go to regular price because, quote, they always mark it up, right? Now, what she's going to argue is even if it's on sale does not necessarily make it a good value. All right, that's, and then the second side, and it's also what we call the reference price. Anything that you see as the manufacturer's suggested retail price is, a, is sort of a game in the retail world, if you will, according to Shell, by the way, who is not a shield, but we do share a similar name. Uh, to lure you in, and then the reference price becomes sort of the basis, basis point for discounts. And then we prefer to actually buy some items at a higher price if we think we're getting a good value, that is, affordable luxury. So if you were comparing three televisions at Best Buy, you would normally not pick the cheapest for fear that it's going to break quickly, whether or not the highest price one might, by virtue of consumer reports, break down. We actually might bid it up a bit in order to feel like we are getting a better value for our money. The third thing, so first of all, the, the cheap side, the, the discount side, then the affordable luxury. Then the third argument she makes is then, in the process of being distracted by discount gamesmanship, she says, we just sort of ignore the price on certain things, such as education, airline tickets, fuel in our cars. We will pay whatever price is named. Most of us, as far as we know, will not find a coupon in the Sunday paper for the gas station. Because there's something about our economy that says what we are paying is what it costs to provide that service and it's worth the price even if the price goes up. Now we saw somewhere north of $4 a gallon of gas Things change, but the prices fluctuate to a certain degree, not like, for instance, you don't go to a gas station and have a 75% off rack at the gas station, and this pump is 75% off, right? Different kind of system. Another one uh, that she uses is just basic commodities, milk and those kinds of groceries. All right? The fourth is, then, her argument is, we are sort of drawn into this culture of cheap based on how we are wired as humans. And she makes several economic arguments, and then she makes some biological arguments. That is, we have a chemical reaction to competitiveness. How many of you shop eBay? Anybody here shop eBay occasionally? All right, we have a couple of willing... I'm not going to put you on the spot. It's all right. Um, I don't shop eBay much, but I do know that if... You purchase something on eBay, what comes up on the screen? You're a what? You're a winner, right? 
Now, what is that? You've just bought something. Even if you did, and eBay has things that you don't buy for auction, but you're still a winner, right? Because there's a natural chemical reaction to feeling like, says Shell, to feeling like we got a good deal. This happens somewhere around December 26th in my home when after all the presents have been unwrapped, you'll hear kind of this narrative of where we got it on sale, how much we paid. We used to play this game growing up where the day after Christmas, items would be bought and then stored in the attic for next Christmas because we knew you'd fit into them and it was a good buy. We didn't call it a good purchase. We called it a good buy, B-U-Y, all right? So those are her four arguments that I think she says would describe the culture of cheap. She says this culture then affects us in a number of ways in our lifestyles and the way we live. The first thing that she gets out her very large sledgehammer and begins to beat against is anything that is a big box store or has more employees than, say, 30. All right? So that includes, of course, Walmart. This book fits a genre of anti-Walmart books that you can find in a nice big box bookstore today. Um, (laughs) Whole Foods, right? Um, and things like, I would say, probably Fresh Market fits that category. She doesn't mention Fresh Market, but uh, things like that. And then a a department store that is popular in large metro areas but has taken furniture manufacturing to a new level, and that's Ikea. And if you go, there's one in Atlanta. Presumably there's one in Nashville as well. But Ikea is the Swedish furniture manufacturer that has turned furniture making and building into a... a, uh, thing like Walmart and Target, all right? And any department store who hires people for cheaper wages but doesn't give them benefits. The second thing is she says we, of course, tend to replace things rather than to repair them, thus feeding the consumption. The third is it affects us because our food prices are kept artificially low, Um, basically through, in her mind, farm subsidies as well as the fishing industry and the overfishing issues. The fourth way it affects us is that smaller family-owned businesses are forced out. Uh, Five, she says this affects us uh, with the decline of craftspeople, people who make furnishings and furniture and sort of the death of the craftsman, if you will. The sixth is... Many of these products that we purchase, we are asked to complete them on our end. So we go to the store, we buy, say, a set of bookshelves for the college dorm, but they come with some assembly required. Um, We can talk about that, but there are some items now that retailers will sell to us fully put together because they know that we don't want to fool with putting them together. Some of you will remember a bicycle used to come... uh, with all the parts, and you would put it together. Now, if you go to, say, where we purchased ours, um, I think we purchased the last bike we bought. No, the last bike we bought was from a family-owned bike store. I want to go on record. But the bike before that uh, was was at Walmart, and it was fully assembled because they knew the cost of assembling would cause us to walk away and not purchase it because of the frustration on Christmas Eve. Um, And then seven... 
lower wage workers and the poor pay higher prices overall, according to Shell, because they not only have to pay the price for fuel, so relatively speaking, as fuel goes up, so it costs more for them to have gas in their cars, but also they constantly replace things at a greater rate because they're constantly buying cheaper goods and cheaper products. So Shell offers about um, five solutions to us, and this is where I think we may begin to have some discussion. The first is, she says that we should determine the value of goods based on more than just the price tag. So that the price tag is actually just a number assigned based on an arbitrary formula, whatever in retail world that is. But for us as people, not as consumers, but as people, because we're defined more than by just our consumption, as people, a price should include the number, the relationship with the person selling it to you, where that product was made, how it arrived, and how they treat the people that make the product. So what Shell wants us to think about as shoppers is the holistic picture from the supply end all the way to the delivery end. That's why she suggests that larger box stores do not take all those things into account. The second thing that she says is that we should perceive ourselves not as merely tourists on a shopping extravaganza, but as people who want a relationship with our retailers. She argues, thirdly, that we need enlightened self-interest. That is Adam Smith's old philosophy that not only would you perceive the product as important, but you would think of the person behind the counter as just as important. The fourth solution she thinks that we need is to understand the game of discounts. That coupons, rebates, retail, even things that are free are part of what she refers to as the sirens that lure you in. Some of you remember the old days of Kmart back when there was one uh, called the Blue Light Special, right? And so you would have this sort of siren call out to a product where you would go to Kmart just to hope that you'd be there when there would be a blue light special. It was kind of the fun. And if we went to Kmart when there was a blue light special, that meant I would get an icy. That, that's really all that was about. Um, and then I appreciated this nod. I'm not sure if this is why I was assigned this book. But she also mentioned another thing that would help is religious guilt. Um, <laughs> I'll read that one to you. Um, She says on page 196, this comes from Richard Locke, professor of entrepreneurship at MIT. He says that there is worldwide only one force powerful enough to enforce workers' rights and protection. Guilt. And there is only one institution capable of evoking that force. The Vatican I did not call Father Joe Shaconi to ask him if he thought this could be part of his Christmas message. Uh, so far, the Vatican has not gotten into the factory inspection business, 
But no other entity on earth, Locke said, can prevent global industry from exploiting and abusing global labor. There is no enforced international law on the books that limits and sets hours, child labor, or anything else. All right. All right, so let me, let me quit talking a minute. What's your reaction to this kind of thing? This isn't the first person to write a book about Walmart, and her argument is a little broader than that. But how do you react to the kinds of things she's posing? And maybe we could create some conversation around uh, not only her argument, but then also perhaps her solutions. I'm surprised that there isn't any um, attention to buying local on her list. Of course, that would, by implication, mean uh, if you're attending to retailers, you would, you would pay more attention to and, and have a relationship with your retailers. They would be people that you grew up with or in your neighborhood, that sort of thing. All right. She makes two arguments about local payment. First of all, you need to pay attention to your local retailers as much as your national ones. She does discuss locally grown products from local farms, and she says that that is one solution in the food industry. If you purchase locally and use the farmer's markets and, and support local growers, that that is one way to break this cycle. Um, and she does talk about small family-owned businesses um, who sell products as perhaps one way to deal with this. Um, she also mentions, though, and I think it's fair to say that Larger box stores provide jobs. They may not be the jobs that produce a career path, and she mentions that as one of her critiques of them. Uh, But in the new economy, one of the things we have to note is a job is better than no job. Now, there are a whole host of books that would probably question that argument too. But in this case, um, that's one of the issues that is a positive is that Certainly larger stores can hire more people and give people jobs. They, can't, they don't necessarily provide the benefits. So that, but in, in response to your question, that's really the only time she ever talks about local kinds of issues. What is the clergy in Knoxville doing to proselytize this message about being aware? Like the points that she made at the end, what is the true cost of items? What does the pulpit do to proselytize this? You mentioned Father Chacon or whatever from <laughs> IC. Yeah. And, and, you know, he would be an expert. Yes, send your cards and letters to him. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm saying in Knoxville, in this community dynamic, the pulpit is very powerful. So it seems to me if you want to get a message across about the true cost and guilt, so to speak, of consumerism, the pulpit would be a great way to start. So why aren't you guys doing something about it? All right, well, let's talk about what part of this is faith and what part of this is economics. Part of the, part of the struggle with the faith-based community is that, let's just suppose that in your faith tradition, you talk a lot about Jesus and you talk about, a lot about John the Baptist. Both of them had one basic message, which is sell everything you have and give it away. So between there and where we live today is this creative tension of we not only, uh, their, their message was divestment 
and what I kind of call downsize now. Don't wait till retirement or don't wait till the funeral to get rid of all that stuff you're storing. Don't even buy it would be the basic soundbite message. So the faith-based community has several different places that it can latch on to. Uh, one of which she does not address, which is called Sabbath. Just simply by, and I think that's something that crosses all faith tradition lines, um, simply by stopping for a day and not purchasing is a discipline. I'm not very good at it. But coming to rest for 24 hours, I'm not talking about going back to blue laws. I'm talking about individual decisions in a family continuing to rest and break from purchasing sort of sets you aright and gets you back on sort of high center and focused on the people around you. Because the Sabbath tradition has always been a tradition out of uh, Judaism, which was we could buy enough and earn enough on six days to get us through the seventh day and trust that on the first day our jobs would be there, our lives would be there. So that would be one thing that we do do. And the second thing in seasons like this is one of the problems the faith tradition has is we're just as guilty as everyone else because we proffer catalogs from international places that are called, you know, fair trade. And we sell items made by people who are in third world areas that need the income. Well, the solution is not selling more stuff. It's stopping buying. But if we stop buying their stuff, they are further left in a cycle of poverty and um, abuse. And I'm going to tell a story about that in a minute. So the faith community has several places where they're asking this question and then saying, how do we step back from this and look at what we're doing, consuming less, uh, using less, creating less waste, but also, uh, part of our tradition has been to feed the cycle. The faith community is, is one of the largest shoppers at Walmart. So, and the research shows that sociologically, that Walmart tends to attract Christians. And they market that way. Chick-fil-A is very, very popular in the Christian community. Intentionally so. I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm just saying that tends to be a strong market. And there are reasons for that. So there's just a lot of creative dynamics I would say most of my colleagues talk about this pretty openly, but they leave the choices up to the individual. I mean, Walmart also is the largest contributor to the Salvation Army during the kettle drive. And this is part of the creative issues we get into. Is that marketing? You bet it is. But is it charity? Well, you know, my friend at Salvation Army would tell you they couldn't do the kettle drive without them. So to answer your question is is to kind of live in the tension and, and sort of admit that we're all sort of culpable here. I mean, I'm wearing a suit that I bought on sale. I haven't even looked at the tags. I don't know where it came from. But I bought my tie from a local guy. You know, so it's that kind of thing where we have to sort of say, all right, let's put it out there and find different places where we can latch on. As for me and my house, we don't shop at Walmart very much. But that doesn't have anything to do with my faith position on it. Um, there's a personal story I'll tell you about that in a minute but I think there's a side of this also where we need to find different places where we can latch on and to support our local community Um, and then also to find different because every faith community is going to have a different place where this is affected and this affects them so those are really good points Mary Palm it seems to me that there are 
kind of two different issues. And the faith community is probably a little more interested in, in materialism than just discount shopping because materialism is really filling a hole. You know, if you're just going out there to buy stuff to fill a spiritual hole, mm-hmm. you know, to feel like you look better to your friends or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a bigger spiritual issue than I think buying things on sale, which, you know, I really don't have that big of a problem with. As long as, you know, you're not exploiting kids in Malaysia, you know, I would far rather pay less money than more, you know. But I I do have a concern about materialism and kind of the spiritual effects of that. And her argument is more on your other point. How do I know when I walk into a large retail store when the only thing that defines an item is price, how do I know what's going on in Malaysia? And the larger the store, the less investigation you're going to do. And her argument is that the more time you take to think about the products you buy, the more you're going to be connected to everyone on that supply chain. Just as we would with our education, just as we would with things that we actually value, and that we may not get a discount for, but we'd look at. So on the faith community side, there is a materialism that affects everything, and that's probably another story, but that is definitely not what she addresses. So, yes. You mentioned that if we stop buying things from overseas, the people who have gotten the, the mini loans and so forth will... Mm-hmm. I think that, that actually, to bring that back home, uh, I remember John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a book in the 50s called The Affluent Society, saying that we really can produce more than we can consume. So we are, we are now becoming a society where the push is to get people to consume. So this issue is now about 60 years old at least. Along with that came the notion of planned obsolescence. So we, you have to plan for things either to be out of fashion or to break down. So we've been in this for a long time. We, we buy cheap because it's cheaper to make things that break down sooner. So if we stop buying cheap, and then the things don't get produced, then people lose jobs, well, at this point in China, because we've shipped our, our production over there. Well, there, there is, you, all, you always pay attention to what political parties agree on, and there is one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on, because both our current president and our previous president said the same thing about the recession, and both agreed that the only way out of the recession is to spend and for consumers to buy. Well, that should send red flags off to anybody who reads this book because her argument is consumption creates continual cycles of problems and greater indebtedness in the long run. So those are real tensions in our society right now. If we spent ourselves into it and we spend ourselves out of it, what have we done to ourselves? And, and, that's, and that also affects the international community, obviously, the Chinese would like us to keep buying, and she has a nice chapter on the double-headed dragon of that issue. The, the logic um, of cheaper is better is that we've exported our own manufacturing overseas. So we, uh, I think William Greider has written that we now, we're buying things produced by people who can't afford to buy what they're producing, and more and more we can't afford to buy because we don't have jobs because we've shipped the manufacturing overseas. Sure. I th- thought I saw another in the back. Does he address the question of why the Chinese don't try to develop their internal markets? Because I've always wondered about that. 
dependence on our spending primarily, I think is what she would say. They don't have to develop their internal markets because we continue to buy what they're making. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense because they, they can see what's happening as well as we do. I and mean, they have consumers right there in their own country and they have political tension inside their own country. They're terribly worried about uh, their country falling apart. Seems to me developing their internal markets would help them a lot. But, I mean, I don't understand the reasoning, or if anybody understands the reasoning uh, among the leaders of China about that. Yeah, I think part of it, and I don't know if she necessarily makes this argument, um, um, but part of it is just the global workforce and the issue of having to put enough people to work. And uh, but, but her... She sort of mentions China and the, and the issue of their population, but that's really about it. You know, she doesn't get into their own internal issues as much. So. Isn't it true that the, the real issue is the gross domestic product, and couldn't we um, still have a robust uh, gross domestic product without emphasizing things and stuff so much. I mean, obviously, there are areas where, uh, if more money were were pumped into, say, education, I mean, we obviously would boost levels of employment there, and and in a way that's not so focused on stuff, but actually contributes, in the long run, towards greater productivity. Mm-hmm. It, isn't that kind of where we we could do some refocusing? I think there uh, there may be some. Ec- economists in the room that can answer that question a lot better than I could, um, how those things are factored in and what factors contribute to a valuable society. And the answer to that is, yes, we ought to be measured by more than simply um, our sales tax. But in a consumption state, we not only, like Tennessee, we not only have issues with cheap but we need, again, to spend to get ourselves out of recession because it is the main source of revenue for state employees, right? You can see the quandary we're in. It's one thing to say we're going to not spend, but it's another thing to actually think about that and its greater effects on others. That's one thing that the challenge is with the Internet age, how we, this obviously carries over into how you, rate and do retail. I can stand in a store right now with my PDA and look at the price on tagged on the in the store and look at the price where I can find it on the internet and decide do I need it in two days or do I need it right now, right? And that's affecting all of us in terms of sales tax and revenue and how we help and, and work in our society. So Tennessee is especially dependent upon the very things that she's concerned about. So let me share a few of my own thoughts, and then I'm sure you'll talk back to me about this. Um, a little bit about me. First of all, I have a, an aunt who is still alive and um, finished school in eighth grade. That makes sense to you. Dropped out of school in eighth grade. Um, got married at a very early age, and her one and only job in life was to work for a company called Gafers. How many of you ever know what Gafers is, all right? Gafers was owned by a large corporation called Mercantile, and Mercantile was bought out by something that you know and love, and that is Dillard's, all right? 
So Aunt Margaret worked for Dillard's, but back before it was Dillard's, it was Gafer's in Pensacola. And she worked her way up and stayed there for, I believe, 30 or 35 years until she retired and was the head of the infant department in retail at Gafer's. So I have a long family history of dependence upon a retail job, which, as she talks about in her book, is the way it ought to be, that you would be able to work for a company, you would go to work, you would clock in, you would have benefits, but that old sense of the department store being your career job is over, just as every other job being your lifetime appointment is over. But that's one of the points she makes. On the other hand, I have a cousin by marriage who came up working for a grocery outfitter called Jitney Jungle. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jitney Jungle, but that was kind of in the day of Piggly Wiggly and all those other kinds of things. Um, Eventually left Jitney Jungle, lured into the Walmart uh, culture with promises of bonuses, uh, promises of great pay, never delivered, um, caught up in the cycle, and about five years ago, um, committed suicide in the parking lot of his store that he was the manager of. Now, a lot of demons in his life and a lot of issues, but both of those, our family has lived in both of those tensions. The dependence upon retail and then the sorrow of losing a family member caught up in the problems of retail and the pressures to perform. So we have to think about, is this the kind of society we want to live in? And as consumers, we are also people who have been born. We are individuals. We're not just merely defined by what we buy. As part of a community, what happens? And the problem is not price, I think. Although the price tag, and she has a very nice, interesting history of retail. The problem is really greed, And greed is fed not by a person building a lovely house on the river or getting out and and having three or four homes around the world. Greed is caused by simple things like when we say, I need to buy another cell phone for safety reasons so my child can have a phone in fourth grade in case I need to get in touch with her, right? That's... Greed, right? That's taking something that we want to have and turn it into something that we, quote, need to have. It's going out, buying a television, and realizing that I need not only the TV, but in order to make this TV work, I've got to buy the Blu-ray and the surround sound and the high def and all the things, and it becomes an add-on. It's products by addition, right? And so consumption is one thing that feeds off another. So one of the things is just naming this. Because she doesn't talk about greed, but greed is what's at the level of the chemical desire and the chemical reaction and the spirit of competition that's bred in in shopping. So my suggestion after reading her book is, first of all, to really take inventory on what you have right now before you ever think about what you need, because the retailer's desire is to get you to think you really need this, right? Obviously, if we've ever bought something. And then the key to sales is to say, because even nonprofits give into this, um, by 
asking people to buy in, to purchase products that we can double in price to sell them, whether that be cookie sales, gift wrap, um, coupon books. I mean, we're all kind of, we all sort of feed this culture. So look at what you really have and then determine, do I have enough to live on? And then how can I, as I replace things, how can I purchase things that are going to last longer? Because that's one way that we reduce consumption and reduce waste is we purchase better things and fewer things. And then, of course, I think you ought to connect with the people you buy the products from, even internationally. Um, One of my friends works in Bolivia, and she uh, found a group of women who were abused by their alcoholic husbands who did not have educations, could not afford to get jobs because they didn't have a place to put their children and did not have a way of caring for the children even if they had jobs. And every time they'd come home, they'd get beaten up by their husbands and what little money they had would be taken away from them. So she created a, a, a product or a cottage industry that was a scarf industry where women could come paint scarves with this, uh, these watercolors that would be like a dye and would p- make a permanent impression on the scarves. And she would be able to care for their children while the women had a job and a trade that they could perform. They could sell the scarves in America to women who liked the scarves, and the 90% of the profits would go right back to the women in Bolivia And so when they sold a $20 scarf in America, $18 would go back to Bolivian women. And you put that in terms of Bolivian currency, that's a lot of money. And that would go straight into their pockets so they could get out of their abusive environment and then in turn have a self-sustaining and a sustainable lifestyle. Those kinds of stories are all around us. And you know where we can find those stories? We can find them through the Internet. She critiques the Internet as one of the sources of the problem. But like most bad things in life, things get worse, but they also get better simultaneously. And some of our problems also contain the seedbed of our solutions. The Internet, communications, good research, you can find and tap products that not only provide benefit for society, but also help people along the way, like this woman who works with uh, women who've been abused. Number nine, I mentioned this already, when things get better, they also, or get worse, they also get better. We get the chance to research, to be connected, and then to realize there are lots of ways to say, I love you this season, than just money and gifts, right? The retail game, the gamesmanship, the consumption, it's all part of what uh, that dates back even to what I think uh, Homer described in the Odyssey as Ulysses sailed through this area full of the sirens. Do you remember that scene? And it was the sirens that sounded so loud and seductive and that would even cause anyone to be drawn into them. You remember what Ulysses had to do? He had to plug his ears with wax and be strapped to the mast of the ship. But even then, um, the sirens seem to call out. And we're always going to have the sirens. The sirens, as a metaphor, has been used down the years to describe what temptation is like, seduction, and retail is great at this. I also know retail does a lot of good. 
I think about my friend who runs Butler and Bailey Market, and this is an example in, as opposed to the Whole Foods issue. Uh, Tom operates a store just on North Shore as you're going out uh, west. It's a small grocery. Um, he provides and gives his employees a chance to have health insurance benefits. He takes care of them. He goes the extra mile for them. It's a small grocery store. Whenever you walk in, Tom is usually out there in the front greeting his customers. Uh, people like to shop there because they know that the items are going to be in the same place every time. He targets, and, and his niche is folks who, lives, who live in the Rocky Hill area who get lost in the big department-style grocery stores, and he takes care of his employees along the way, even though he knows it probably costs him a little money to do that, but it's worth it in the long run. There are places like that all around us. Even big box stores, and I'll use one example, do a lot of good, and one of them is Kohl's. Kohl's has a great program where they help and assist, they help us and assist us at South Knoxville Elementary. They're going to help my wife today at Rocky Hill. Um, they provide a team of volunteers who are paid, but they're paid by the company to go in and to do community service hours for local nonprofits. So today, a group of five Coles employees will be on the clock, they will go to the school, they will help do a service project. And Coles will contribute back to the school an additional amount of money as a donation for the fundraiser. So there are incredible stories about how sometimes what appears to be the big beast can also be a solution to a problem. And again, the answer to me is relationship. Well, I want to close, if I can, with a little story myself. This is a little story for this season of the year. And you will remember it if you've, since we're around a group of readers here today, you will remember this as a marvelous image from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And it's the scene when the children have been running away from the fast-approaching white witch. And they think that she is on their heels, and when they look back, they see a sled coming across the icy lake. You remember that scene? And they hide in a cave hoping they've escaped her. And when the children exit the cave, they find that it is, of course, not the white witch, but it is Father Christmas who has arrived on the scene. This is C.S. Lewis's little nod to kind of Christmas culture and Santa Claus and Father Christmas. And Father Christmas explains that Christmas has finally arrived and that the witch's power is weakening. And there, outside of the sled, he gives everyone a gift. He gives Mrs. Beaver a new sewing machine and tells Mr. Beaver that his dam has been mended. Then he gives gifts to the children, but he says to them, they are tools and not toys. They are to be used in a time of greatest need. To Peter, he gives a sword and a red shield with a lion to defend himself in battle. To Susan, he gives a bow and an arrow, not for her to fight in battles, but again for defense. She also presents her with a horn that she can blow that will save her from danger. 
And then he offers Lucy a dagger and a bottle that he's that he says he says to her battles are ugly when women fight he also gives lucy a bottle of magic cordial and explains that just a few drops will heal any injury or ailment then father christmas gives them all marvelous food and tea and dashes off to bring christmas to more people animals and creatures and he explains what this season was all about the holiday season whether christmas is your time to give gifts or not He says they are tools and not toys. Tools to be in the hands of others to bring good, to promote peace, and to share it with others. So I wonder in this season if we could give some more tools to one another. Tools of less consumption. Tools of relationship. Things that could be used to help us live with greater value and not so cheaply. Any other thoughts today? Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.